Baneful Legacy, Medicare, and Mr. Trudeau. You're listening to Longwoods Radio, your healthcare source for ideas, new policies, and best practices. Well, the bomb ticking away at the heart of Mr. Trudeau's constitution has finally gone off. An arrogant, ignorant, and irresponsible court, jurisdictionally arrogant, substantially ignorant, and politically irresponsible, has determined by a vote of four to three that Medicare must be restructured to show due respect for the rights of those with money and the rights of private corporations to make profits, regardless of the wishes of Canadians or the impact on our most important social institution. Fiat justitia, ruat caela. If the heavens fall, what kind of justice is that? Ask those underneath. Judges, said Bacon, ought to remember that their office is to interpret law and not to make law or give law. They must be lions under the throne, as Solomon's throne was upheld by lions. In fact, of course, their judgments inevitably do make new law, but always subject to the legislative authority of the Crown and Parliament. Ultimate sovereign powers rests with the representatives of the electorate. Or it did. Our new constitution, of which Mr. Trudeau was so proud, in effect permits the lions to climb onto the throne and thrust aside the sovereign. In the enthusiasm for individual rights, few have imagined that these could have been used to draw down Medicare. It is difficult yet to say with any certainty how much damage has been done and whether we are now committed in, course due, in due course to an American-style catastrophe. How severely will the alleged guaranteed right to security of the person be abridged for the unhealthy and unwealthy? Much depends on the response by provincial and federal governments. But whatever public-private hybrid emerges will be less equitable and more costly than our present health care system, and there will be no road back. The Constitution did originally provide for the ultimate assertion of par parliamentary sovereignty through the notwithstanding clause. In some mysterious way, however, the Constitution has been silently amended over the last two decades to remove this last protection. How did this happen? The amendment was never formally proposed, nor its possible consequences debated. Indeed, it has left no track in a written law. Yet there seems universal agreement that, would be, that it would be political suicide for any government, for any reason, to evoke the notwithstanding clause. Even Premier Ralph Klein, surely the most secure politician in Canada, backed away. If ever there was an occasion for a government to reassert its ultimate sovereignty, nominally protected in the Constitution, with a reasonable expectation of strong public support, surely the time is now. But I wouldn't bet on it. The disappearance of the notwithstanding clause has left parliamentary sovereignty conditional upon judicial de deference. This is not a trivial defense, as illustrated in, in Autonne. But when it fails, four sovereign individuals representing no one but themselves and responsible only for their own co consciences can dictate the future direction of our health care system. This looks more like a judicial tyranny than democracy. There is no social program that, that we have that more defines Canadianism or, is that more, or that is more important to the people of our country. Well, so what? We think otherwise. The Constitution is currently the most prominent part of Mr. Trudeau's legacy to Medicare, but as always, there is a history. At the end of the 1980s, surveys found higher levels of public satisfaction with health care among Canadians than in any other country surveyed. Ten years later, we barely ranked above the Americans. 
The reductions in federal transfers to the provinces, both the slow erosion of the 1980s and the much larger cuts of the 90s, led to major cuts in provincial hospital spending in the early 90s. Whether or not the system really was underfunded as a result in fact, is in fact debatable. The cost pressures were associated with a considerable reduction, long overdue, in unnecessary inpatient care. But there is no doubt in the media or in the perceptions of the general public the system is broken. The decline in public confidence in the health care system, though not in the fundamental principles of Medicare, created a golden opportunity for those who, for ideological or economic reasons, have always rejected those principles. Insurance companies, entrepreneurial physicians, and private corporate providers more generally have sought out ways to circumvent restraints on their access to patients' resources. There's a great deal of money to be made in wrecking Medicare. Meanwhile, those at the top of the income distribution have everything to gain from private, private payment, preferred access, and lower taxes. These interests and their representatives have generated a flood of lurid anecdotes, selective reporting, and outright disinformation about Medicare's failings and the need for private care, all uncritically recycled by the media. If it bleeds, it leads. The daily successes experienced by millions of satisfied patients go unreported. What impact did this long-term campaign have on the members of the Supreme Court and the social milieu in which they were immersed? The cuts, as we all know, were motivated by the steady increase in the federal debt, following the recession of 1982 and the even bigger one of 1990-93, with slow and incompetent recovery in between. By 1995 and 96, federal debt charges were nearly $50 billion per year. 37.6% of budgetary revenues, and the federal debt amounted to 69.3% of GDP. What is rarely noticed, however, is that the net federal debt-to-GDP ratio actually began to rise in the mid-1970s. Long post-war decline reached a trough of 5.7% in 1974, but then began a slow and steady climb to 13.5% in 1981. The share of federal revenues absorbed by debt charges, 11.7% in 1973 and 74, had doubled to 25.1% in 1981 and 82, just before the first big recession hit. All of this was on Mr. Trudeau's watch. The federal operating budget and surplus for all but two years, from 1961 and 62 to 1974 and 75, went into deficit and stayed there until 1987-88. Subsequent surpluses were too small to reverse the massive momentum built up by the accumulated debt. Not until the huge operating surpluses of the mid-1990s did the federal government begin to regain fiscal ground. These huge surpluses, however, required the large cuts in federal expenditures and transfers. The debt accumulation prior to the recessions of the 80s was relatively small in light, in light of what was to come. But the deficits of the later 1970s, interacting with historically high interest rates, weakened the federal fiscal position just before the economic weather turned foul. What if, in 1981 and 82, debt charges had been taking 5% of federal revenues instead of 25%? The brutal deficit fighting of the 1990s, with its massive impact on healthcare system, would have at least been much less severe. So. What swung the federal operating budget sharply into deficit in 1975-76? Well, and conventionally trained economists, including those in the Department of Finance, were inclined to blame the rising costs of social programs, particularly health, public health insurance. 
They tend to be suspicious of social spending generally, and deeply suspicious of free public services. They are ever alert for allocation distortions and welfare burdens gen generated by such programs. Distributional questions, who gets what, are implicitly irrelevant, and they, even though they are at the heart of all social policy. A pair of humble number grubbers at St Statistics Canada, however, pointed out that the real answer was tax cuts. Social spending surged at the late, in the late 60s and early 70s, but federal revenue growth was sufficient that the debt burden continued to fall. After 74 and 75, spending growth actually flattened out relative to the GDP, but revenues over GDP fell and remained permanently lower in response to major changes to the income tax. Mr. Trudeau's government had stumbled, presumably inadvertently, onto the formula since used so deliberately and effectively by many right-wing governments cut taxes, create a deficit, lament it, and be forced to cut social spending. The result? Higher take-home incomes for the wealthy and fortunate and lower public benefits for the unwealthy or unfortunate. Mr. Trudeau surely did not foresee or intend the ultimate effects of his tax changes. Those effects depended, inter alia, on the contributing impact of two major recessions. But the trail starts with him. While apparently not hostile to the fundamental principles of Medicare, Mr. Trudeau seems to have been more or less indifferent. That indifference had very long-term and very negative consequences. The architects of Medicare viewed universal coverage of hospital and Medicare services as only the first stage in the construction of a health care financing system that would be effective and efficient as well as equitable. Coverage should be extended to dental and pharmaceutical services. There was never any logic to their exclusion. And, armed with fiscal leverage, governments could take on the major task of structural reform of the delivery system itself. With the election of Mr. Trudeau, this follow-on agenda was quietly abandoned. We are now suffering the consequences. Prescription drugs provide the leading example. Last year, Canadians spent, on average, $562.05 on prescription drugs, 13.8% of total health care costs. Physicians and hospitals accounted for 12.8% and 29.9% respectively. In 1975, prescriptions cost us $33.34, only 6.3% of the total, while doctors and hospitals took up 15.1% and 44.7%. Over the last 30 years, the share of our national income spent on prescription drugs has tripled, from 0.44% to 1.39%. Spending on doctors and hospitals, by contrast, has risen from 4.19% of the GDP to 4.32%, essentially unchanged. The point is well understood by students of healthcare finance, sole source public financing permits, global cost control. Mixed and fragmented public and private financing promotes unconstrained cost escalation. Before Medicare, spending in both Canada and the United States was escalating in parallel. The introduction of Medicare was associated with an abrupt halt in the Canadian trend. Pharmaceuticals in Canada, financed in essentially the same multi-source way as American healthcare generally, showed the exact, exactly the same pattern of continuing escalation. These facts require constant reiteration because the disinformation industry constantly promotes the message that public health care is f fiscally unsustainable and that the only viable solution is to shift a more private coverage. 
Bluntly, this is a lie. Co cost control has worked. When governments are on the hook for these costs and must tackle the politically challenges they present. But a federal government with no responsibility for drug costs makes expensive regulatory concessions to the industry, backed by foreign governments. Provinces able to shift rising costs onto users do so. Those costs come back again, of course. But there are some later governments' problem. So the escalation goes on. And by now, Canadian patients, businesses, and taxpayers pay several billions of dollars a year in inflated drug costs. It didn't have to be this way. Mr. Trudeau's government could have easily have brought in Pharmacare in the early 1970s. The sector was still relatively small and already partly funded by governments. Full public funding would have added another 6.5% to public sector health, health costs, as well as one year's growth. In fact, the public share of drug costs went up sharply in the 1970s anyway, but bought no control. Today, however, Big Pharma is an international monster, vastly more wealthy and powerful than 30 years ago. It is hedged about with barbed wire of trade agreements, for which its members provide good advice and backed by the full weight of American trade policy. It has good friends in both Congress and the presidency. Big Pharma is fully aware of, and bitterly opposed to, the cost containment potential of universal programs. Every dollar of public or private cost is a dollar of their sales, and at the margin, mostly profit. A Canadian Pharmacare program, now modeled on Medicare, would not only be vastly more expensive, but would meet vastly more powerful resistance on many fronts. Big Pharma epitomizes Joel Bacan's description of the modern corporation as an amoral, sociopathic organization, profit and power driven, that seeks to escape all forms of social control and in the United States has largely succeeded. The chance that Mr. Trudeau's government threw away is probably lost forever. That was then, this is now. Mr. Trudeau is history. What's the point? Well, history can repeat itself, and when the same forces are at work, it does. Ignoring the threat of the, of the, public, of the private health insurance industry, now we can have the same long-run consequences as ignoring the pharmaceutical industry then. If private insurance becomes as solidly entrenched in Canada as it is in the United States, generating a similar scale of administrative waste, costs without benefits, we will never get it out again. We, we will be permanently saddled with another inefficient and inequitable component in our financing mix, a component whose primary functions are to undermine cost control and to redistribute health costs from the healthy and wealthy to the unhealthy and unwealthy. It was our great good fortune, when Medicare was being introduced, that the private industry was insufficiently developed to put up much political resistance. Nor were there trade agreements, backed by foreign sanctions, protecting corporate rights to profit against the policies of duly elected democratic governments. That time is gone. Mr. Trudeau's legacy underlines powerfully the very large, though sometimes very long-term, costs of failure to take appropriate action at critical times. The present threat to Medicare has its origins in decisions taken, and especially not taken, 20 and 30 years ago. That threat is real and very serious, and most important, importantly, its effects will be irreversible. We and our governments need to be thinking immediately about the very hard, and very hard about how to salvage the situation. Indeed, that same message comes from the advocates of private health care. When they tell us not to be unduly alarmed, 
that the Supreme Court's decision will not undermine Medicare and may even strengthen it. When the right wing says, don't worry, be happy, we should worry a lot and act. Now is no time to shrug. What to do? My preferred choice, obviously, would be to disinter the notwithstanding clause, but that, as Mr. Humphrey, as Sir Humphrey would say, would be a courageous decision. Just for starters, then, consider the tax expenditure subsidy for employer-paid private health insurance, much less politically sensitive and wholly within the jurisdiction of the federal government. Canadian governments actually cover about a third of the cost of these premiums by treating them as tax-free benefits. This subsidy should be removed selectively for, or perhaps more accurately not extended to, employer-paid health insurance that parallels Medicare. Taxing employer-paid premiums in the hands of the employee is no magic bullet, but should at least inhibit the spread of private coverage. This could be done quickly, and the announcement alone would send a very strong signal of intent to defend. If we can no longer ban private coverage, for heaven's sake, let's not subsidize it. Robert Evans is the Professor of Economics at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, B.C. This has been Longwoods Radio. Thanks for listening.